Welcome back, jazz fans. This is Jared Woodcox, host of the J Notes Blast podcast. Going to be just by myself today doing the show, but I uh, still have some great things to talk about. Obviously, we know the training camp is uh, less than two weeks away. We're getting really close to the start of jazz basketball. Uh, pretty soon, things are going to be really going, really exciting. And so, looking forward to the season getting underway. Unfortunately, the, this calm before the storm right now means there's not a ton going on in Jazzland other than fans uh, getting anxious and really anticipating the start of the season. Um, I know for me, it can't come soon enough. So pretty soon we'll be talking about preseason games. We'll be talking about, you know, what the what the lineup's looking like and different things like that. Um, but for today, um, I really wanted to recap what we've just witnessed with a few Jazz players um, and, and just do a little bit of a synopsis or a summary on the, the FIBA play of Utah Jazz players. And uh, just real quick, for those of you that are new to the show, um, you'll know that every show I, I cover three separate points. Um, that's the way I like to have this organized. And, you know, we love our analytics, our three-point shots. So we stick to three points here at the, at the J-Notes podcast. Um, so for point one, I uh, want to talk about Donovan Mitchell specifically in FIBA play, um, as well as the rest of Team USA, and you know really what went wrong there, what we should be thinking there, um, and whatnot. Uh, for point two, I want to talk about uh, Rudy Gobert and his play with uh, France that obviously won the, the bronze medal. I'll probably talk a little bit too about Ricky Rubio in that segment as well. Even though he's no longer with the Jazz, obviously the former Jazzman is still very popular in Salt Lake City, so I want to touch on him a little bit as well. Then for the third point, we'll talk about the... Um, the third jazz man uh, that suited up for FIBA action, Joe Ingles, who played with Australia. And also, you know, beyond just talking about him in FIBA play, I want to talk a little bit about how I foresee him being used this upcoming season with the Jazz, how he'll fit into some of the lineups there as well. So that's going to be awesome and, and really looking forward to going through those things. Real quick, before we jump into point one, I uh, just want to again say a quick thank you to those that have given me uh, ratings on iTunes. Didn't see any more with any descriptions, but did get a couple of anonymous uh, five-star ratings there. So really appreciate that. I hope you guys will continue to you know listen and, and give me those, those high reviews. Um, if you leave me one, a five-star rating, I'll be sure to shout you out on the show and show you a little bit of love. So if you give me the love, I'll return it right back. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get into the show now. Uh, we'll start, like I said, with point number one, talking about Donovan Mitchell and Team USA. Point one. So I don't know about the rest of you guys out there, but for me, really the joy of FIBA this year was was watching Donovan Mitchell. Um, it was really exciting to see him in such a featured role for Team USA. And in full transparency, I definitely watched uh, Mitchell and, and Team USA more than anyone else, including France and Australia. Um, so this is where I feel like I have the most expertise, but I'll definitely touch on, on Joe Ingles and Rudy Gobert in the next two segments here shortly. Um, but I really enjoyed, even though the games were early and, uh, you know, my wife thought I was crazy getting up and watching the game, showering at halftime and then trying to run out the door to work. <laughs> um, it was really fun getting up and watching Mitchell in action. And, and I loved what I saw out of him. And it's really astounding to me how I feel like there's been a lot of criticism towards Mitchell, um, really, in some instances, by, by both non-Jazz fans and Jazz fans alike, just expecting a ton out of him in his third year. And I think some of that is, is warranted, I mean, not necessarily the criticism, but I think the expectations are warranted and just wanted to see the most out of him. I know for me personally, if I ever am found, you know, seemingly criticizing Donovan Mitchell or critiquing him, um, really it's not out of, of hatred as some, you know, anti-Jazz fans or anti-Mitchell fans might be. But for me, it's just because I, I want to see him be the very best he can be. And obviously he's far more in control of that than I am. And, and I have full confidence in him reaching that. Um, but really, despite any criticisms or any shortcomings he had during FIBA play, um, for those of you who watched, for those of you who didn't, um, really, 
all you can say is that Mitchell played extremely well. I mean, I don't see how anyone can be anything but satisfied with, with how he played. There's a few little things that we'll touch on it, and yeah, sure, maybe there were some bumps along the way. Um, but like I said, really, I was extremely pleased with how Donovan Mitchell played. And the first thing I want to point out is, you know, he's been pretty criticized for his shooting efficiency, and he did have a couple poor outings in FIBA as well. But when you look at where he ended up, it was actually an extremely nice finish. He finished with a field goal percentage of 46.6%, and his three-point clip was all, went all the way up to 40.5%, uh, which is far better than he finished last season with. And in fact, that was actually the second best shooting mark on Team USA, uh, behind only Joe Harris, who obviously won the three-point contest this past year, and he's a lights-out three-point shooter. And uh, I don't mean this is any offense to Donovan Mitchell because, like I said, 40.5% is a great mark from three. Um, but, but really the fact that uh, he was the second best shooter on the team was a little bit of probably a red flag um, for Team USA. Um, I'll, I'll get more into that in a little bit. But focusing on Mitchell, I mean, he, he had a, a great outing. He had a great um, eight games with Team USA. And outside of his efficiency, which ended up looking really nice, I think my favorite thing about him was his passing and just the ability he had to share the ball and set teammates up. Um, he was obviously second on the team in assists per game at, at five per contest, which was only trailing Kemba Walker. And then with Kemba Walker sitting out that last game, uh, Donovan Mitchell actually had the most total assists um, of anyone on Team USA. So it was great to see him move the ball and share the ball so well. And, you know, I think that sometimes Mitchell was criticized in his first two years in, in the NBA, uh, usually by people that were a little bit ignorant uh, to what he was having to do and what the Jazz were having him do. But he was criticized sometimes for being a chucker, uh, for being a ball hog, a guy that wouldn't pass the ball. And while we know that's not him at all, as Jazz fans that are familiar with him know that's not the case, he really showed that's nowhere close to the case in FIBA play. And I think personally for me, it was just nice to see that, you know, like he showed in France when he had that 29-point explosion, you know, he's still the Donovan Mitchell that can carry a team and, and put the offensive load on his shoulders. But he also showed all throughout FIBA play that he can be a facilitator. He can be a guy that's setting guys up and making the right pass and making uh, the good decisions out there. So that was extremely reassuring to see. And I think that's going to really be um, an awesome aspect of him when he, when he gets with the Jazz. Uh, because really, you know, it's going to be so great to see this year because we already know that he's not going to have to shoulder quite the offensive load with Mike Conley and Boyan Bogdanovich. Uh, but not only that, but if his facilitating carries over, he's going to make those guys so much better. You know, when he drives to the rim and the defense tries to collapse, on him um, and he's able to kick out to guys like Bogdanovich, guys like uh, Conley, obviously still Ingles. If that passing really carries over, we're going to see some great plays from Mitchell and I honestly, rather than see him have a major uptick in points per game this upcoming year, I'd love to see him have a major uptick in uh, assists per game. I think that would just be awesome. And you know, um, when I just said he's going to have these great teammates to play along with, I was mainly referring to you know better than what he's used to with the Jazz. Uh, but also, if we're being honest with ourselves, there's a pretty strong argument that you could say that Mike Conley is actually better than any of the players that he played with on Team USA as well. And by saying that, I mean no disrespect to the guys on that team. Obviously, Kemba Walker has been an all-star and is a great player. I mean, you can argue that Mike Conley has never been an all-star. Um, obviously, having played in, in the West with the Grizzlies his whole career, um, he was kind of at a disadvantage there. And I, I think there's a lot of backbone and a lot of evidence to, to say that Mike Conley may be better than anyone that Mitchell just played with in Team USA. So my point in bringing that up is if 
if he was able to facilitate the ball so well and get his teammates there set up, I imagine what he's going to be able to do with an even better teammate in Mike Conley. So just all around, I'm really excited to see Mitchell. Um, I thought he showed a lot of maturity, um, both on the basketball court and with dealing with some of the adversity that came with, you know, a new roster and all of the um, criticisms that came to Team USA um, that really I felt were, were very unwarranted for the most part, um, especially considering that they had, a, you know, a, a definitely a weaker roster than they're used to. And because all the time these people that are criticizing these, these players that went out and played for their country um, are probably people that can't even get off their couch or, or dribble a basketball. So just funny to see all the, not funny, it's, it's frustrating I'd say to see all this criticism for these guys that went out there and played their butts off. But anyway, along those lines, I also want to speak a little bit to, you know, a few things that went wrong with Team USA. I mean, obviously the seventh plate finish was not what they had in mind, you know, regardless of who was or wasn't on the team. Um, the only roster that was fully stocked with NBA players, um, you definitely expected them to do better than that. And it was, it was a little heartbreaking uh, for me to see them drop so low, especially with Mitchell being, like I said, one of the featured players. Would have been great if they could have gone a little further. Um, want to touch on just a few things that, that went wrong. And, and I know that most of you guys are probably aware of these already, but wanted to give my take as well. Obviously, first and foremost was just players dropping out. And I love that, you know, Coach Popovich and the guys that suited up didn't use that as a crutch or an excuse. I mean, it was all about the players that were there. And I think we all know that if the, the you know, Americans had had their normal roster or, or a fully loaded roster, that they would have done much better. There's a statistic that 31 out of the 35 players who were on the Team USA roster last summer uh, actually backed out. Um, and so that was obviously a massive number. I mean, if you were to look at teams, um, you know, across the world, and I talked about this in my last episode with, uh, with Derek Kramer when he was guesting on the show, um, you know, if you were to take away the top 10 to 15 players from these other teams, I mean, they wouldn't be able to compete at all. So the fact that, you know, 31 of the 35 players that were on the Team USA roster last year uh, weren't there this time, and the USA was still competitive, and I know they finished seventh, and it was very disappointing, but they still had a good shot to win the whole thing, even even with that. And there's really no other country's team that, that could have said that. If you had that many of their best players that weren't in action, they wouldn't have come anywhere close. So... My point there is that obviously that's the first thing that went wrong is before these guys even got on the floor, um, I mean, it was, they were just at that disadvantage of not having the talent that we're used to seeing on an American roster. And in fairness, I, I know a lot of bad-mouthing has taken place about like, wow, all these guys that, that backed out and didn't show up to play. But you have to remember, a lot of them were actually injured. I mean, you look at guys like Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, Paul George with the shoulder injuries, uh, John Wall, uh, Victor Oladipo. Uh, I mean, these are all guys that you know maybe would have played. I, I don't know they would. I, I like to think that probably Probably Oladipo would have played. Um, I think Paul George may have as well. Although obviously he's kind of had the the you know scary uh, he had the scary Team USA experience previously. But my point is, I mean, you have these guys that you know very well could have suited up, um, but but were just injured from the get go. Then you guys that got hurt later on in the process, like PJ Tucker, Kyle Kuzma. Obviously not as big a names as the ones I just mentioned, but still their injuries were, were hurtful. Then later on you had Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart, even Kemba Walker set out that last game against Poland. Uh, they all got banged up during the actual play so really that you know not only was it players dropping out but another big one you know all throughout the process was was injuries I mean that was something that Team USA dealt with to a quite an extreme and that was a big thing that went wrong um, another one and you know it's, it's sort of painful to say this but really just poor roster construction aside from the fact that these guys had never played with one another and they were very unfamiliar with, with uh, you know each other's games really it was just a very interestingly put together roster I mean, uh, like I just mentioned, I, I love Donovan Mitchell to, to death, but the fact that he was our second best three-point shooter, you know, percentage-wise, when all was said and done, is a little 
little bit concerning. Um, I think they definitely could have added another sniper or two to the roster, um, along with Joe Harris. That could have made things a little bit easier for them to space the floor and get some better shots there. And then really, they, not only did they need more shooting, but they definitely needed more physical size. Um, you know, no disrespect to Mason Plumley or Brooke Lopez, but they just didn't have a good showing. And, you know, recently on uh, the jnotes.com, I wrote about how helpful it could have been to have Derek Favors um, on that roster. And, of course, I don't know what happened behind the scenes. I don't know if he was ever considered. I, maybe if he had been invited, he still wouldn't have accepted. But I just feel like there's so many things that, um, that Favors could have brought to the table that would have been so useful. When you look at Derek Favors per 36 minutes marks from a year ago, um, you know, even Miles Turner, he was ahead of him in, in points per game, 18.3, which was also ahead of Lopez and Plumley. You know, he was better in rebounding. He had, you know, pretty much one of the best uh, field goal percentages of that group outside of Plumley, just by a little bit. And then obviously defensively, I mean, Miles Turner, he finished, you know, fifth in the league last year in defensive player of the year voting. But when you look at favors defensively uh, from a physical standpoint, you know, he would have been so helpful against guys like Rudy Gobert, um, you know, guys like Nikola Jokic. I mean, he really is definitely the strongest and most physical of the ones the team USA was able to bring. And having, you know, if not favors, someone like favors that brought a little bit more strength, a little bit more size, toughness, physicality, I think would have worked wonders for this USA squad. So really just the overall roster build was not quite equipped to take on, um, you know, the challenges of the FIBA game. I think that was a huge problem that they had from the get-go. Um, another one, and, and um, if you guys have listened to me before, you know I love Kemba Walker. Uh, I'm really bummed he's going to be with the Celtics, but that's a whole other story. Um, but even though I love Kemba Walker, I mean, one of the things that went wrong is he had a terrible game against France. And I mean, I'm not going to sit here and be too critical um, to him because, I mean, every single player has a bad game. It just happened to come at a really bad time. And, you know, typically, you know, these Team USA squads, if one player has a bad game, you know, you've got four, five, six, seven, whatever other players that are going to step up and it's not even going to matter. Um, but this Team USA squad, they just couldn't afford Kemba Walker to have a bad game at all. I mean, um, you can argue Donovan Mitchell was the best player for Team USA. I, I think there's a very strong argument of that. Um, I think Kemba Walker also deserves, you know, credit for being, you know, their most steady player outside of that game against France. So anyway, what I'm trying to say here is, um, they just couldn't overcome him having a horrible game. It, you know, even though Donovan Mitchell played fantastic, um, one bad game from Kemba was more than this, you know, weaker team could overcome. You know, there was a lot of, you know, points made about how uh, Kemba didn't share the ball very well in that fourth quarter against France. And, you know, I have to agree um, that, that was definitely a problem. Mitchell should have had the ball more. But even so, I mean, I think Kemba was trying to be the leader he'd been all throughout and he, he had that bad game. You know, normally a Team USA player has a bad game and the other guys are able to recover, but that was not the case with this roster. One thing I'll say along those lines too is that you know, I really feel like, you know, say Kemba has a good game against France, I think the Team USA probably wins that game. I mean, they had a seven-point lead in the fourth quarter, uh, plenty of chances to, to capitalize and go ahead. And if they win that game against France, I really think Team USA would have gone all the way to the finals and had a very good chance against Spain. Now, I might say that and you might think, Jared, you're crazy. I mean, they lost the very next game to Serbia. Uh, but really, you know, I think we knew from the get-go that Serbia was going to be a tough matchup uh, for the USA. And um, had, you know, Serbia still lost and Argentina won and then had USA beat France, I really think the U.S. would have matched up um, quite well against Argentina. I don't think they would have had the problems that, that France did against 
against them. And then from there, you know, advancing to play Spain, they had obviously beat Spain in friendly play. So I think they would have had a very good chance just from a matchup perspective. Not only that, but I think that if it would have been USA-Serbia in an actual meaningful game and not just in a consolation game where, you know, Team USA was already, you know, downtrodden and playing on the second night of a back-to-back, essentially, um, you know, I think it could have been very much a different situation. So um, hard to look at it that way, but it, it's sad to think that if Kemba had had a little bit of a better game or if Mitchell had gotten the ball on the fourth and been able to do a little bit more, um, that very well might have been the difference between a seventh-place finish and a first-place finish. We'll never know. That's just my take on it and my thoughts on what could have happened. Um, the last thing I'll mention, I'm sure I could I could touch on more, um, but the last one that I think was something that really went wrong for Team USA going back to that game against France um, was Miles Turner um, just having kind of the unwise decision to give Rudy Gobert some bulletin board material. Um, if you guys missed it, you know, after um, after group play came to an end, you know, there was a press conference with uh, Miles Turner, um, you know, in the game after uh, the USA had beat Brazil. And he mentioned that, you know, Rudy Gobert was a great player um, and then said he's the defensive player of the year, according to some. Uh, obviously kind of a slight at Gobert getting that award. And don't get me wrong, I honestly think Miles Turner is a fine player. You know, I think he should have actually gotten more defensive player of the year votes than he got. Uh, he came in fifth, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, but really, he just poked the bear there. And sure, Rudy Gobert might have dominated him anyway um, had he not said that. Um, but especially with how vulnerable Team USA was, they already had a huge target on their back. The last thing he needed to do was, was you know, throw gasoline on a fire that, that didn't need to be ignited. So obviously he dominated Turner in that game. It was a great showing uh, for Gobert and a, and a horrible game for, for Turner in that instance. And that was just one more thing in a laundry list of items that went wrong for Team USA. So anyway, uh, like I said, I watched Team USA the most, uh, so I'm not going to have as much to say about France and Australia as a whole. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, in summary, Jazz, fans should be really pleased with Donovan Mitchell. Um, don't be too hard on, on Team USA given all these situations and circumstances. I'm really proud of the guys that went out there and played their guts out, especially Donovan Mitchell. And I can't wait to see what he does on the Jazz's upcoming season uh, with the likes of Conley and Bogdanovich. Uh, with that said, let's roll over now to point number two. We'll talk about Rudy Gobert and his performance in FIBA with France. Point two. So obviously Rudy Gobert in France, uh, you know, managed to win the bronze medal um, in FIBA action. Uh, would have really liked to see them go all the way, and, and, and I wish that France-Australia game could have been for the gold medal. Um, obviously such was not the case, as, as France lost really a shocker to Argentina, and then um, Australia lost a double overtime thriller to Spain. A little bit of controversy in that one. I'll touch on that in the next segment. Um, when I talk about Joe Ingles. But, you know, as it pertains to Jazz fans and watching Rudy Gobert, I mean, I don't know how you could be anything but pleased. Obviously, he had a, a really great showing um, in FIBA play. You know, he was second uh, among all the participants in blocks per game at nearly two per game. Um, he was excellent on defense for them. Um, he also had, a, you know, 9.1 rebounds per game, which was fourth best among all FIBA participants. You know, shot 63% from the field. Um, really any weaknesses you saw to Rudy or any shortcomings, I think more than anything were him being um, not utilized quite as effectively, effectively as we've seen him used in, in Quinn Snyder's systems. Um, so really all in all, a, a great showing from Rudy Gobert, uh, especially in that game against Team USA. I mean, he proved to anyone watching, you know, why he has been the back-to-back -back defensive player of the year, um, why he is one of the most effective players on both ends of the court. Let's not forget his offensive impact as well as far as screen setting, as far as, you know, getting fouled and going to the line. Um, you know, as far as being aggressive and, and attacking the rim and, and just all around a great showing from Gobert in that contest. Um, I think really the only thing that stands out to me that um, it's nothing new um, by any means, but just, you know, when teams go small against Gobert, um, there's times when he can be rendered less effective than you'd like to see out of him. 
I mean, really, we saw, you know, <laughs> dinosaur uh, Luis Scola, 39-year-old Luis Scola, uh, give him the business um, for Argentina. Um, and, and, you know, Scola is a crafty guy, an ex-NBA player, but still a little bit surprising to see that there. And then even more so in the third quarter um, when Team USA played France, you know, the Americans went small. And, and really, that was when Donovan Mitchell went off and, and they had that big comeback. Uh, so really gave him some trouble there. And that's just something that I feel like, you know, uh, Gobert and Quinn Snyder are going to need to do some work together. They're going to need to figure out how he can remain impactful regardless of who's on the floor for the opposing teams. Because we all know what a great defender he is. We all know, you know, how well he protects that rim. Obviously, we know his impact on offense as well, even if it is sometimes, you know, underrated or are understated, uh, perhaps. But really, there's times when, you know, teams have figured him out a little bit. We've seen the Houston Rockets, you know, really put him in a tough spot. And that always, hasn't always been his fault. You know, I was one of the first ones to come out and defend Rudy Gobert last year in the, in the playoffs against the Rockets. Because, you know, when the guards were getting beat so easily, I mean, it was impossible for Gobert to be in two places at once. If he came out to defend the guard, it was an alley-oop to Capella. If he stayed back on Capella, it was usually an easy floater for James Harden, for example. So not, not all Rudy Gobert's fault by any means. Um, but still, the fact remains that a lot of times when these teams are going smaller um, it becomes a challenge for him so seeing how him and Quinn Snyder can adapt and really you know get the most out of him in those situations is going to be a big aspect of this upcoming year but nevertheless you know if we are nitpicking for negatives I mean maybe you wanted to see a little bit more of an offensive repertoire to go bear uh, but I thought I did well you know he shot free throws relatively well I think that's something that he really needs to continue to improve on is getting fouled and uh, you know getting the line and making those free throws obviously he shot it extremely well against Team USA he went nine out of ten from the free throw line in that game so shot a whopping 90% from the line uh, obviously that's probably not going to be sustainable but how nice would it be if, if he could even get anywhere close to that in a regular season so a lot of good things from him um, just real quick I, I know that we're you know focusing on jazz players but also thought it'd be appropriate to mention a little bit about you know Ricky Rubio um, obviously said that Spain went on to win the whole thing and along with that Ricky Rubio was the MVP of the entire FIBA World Cup um, I didn't see a ton of this by any means, but I saw a little bit of murmurs, a little bit of concern um, among Jazz fans, just some chatter here and there that, you know, maybe the Jazz are going to regret parting ways with Ricky Rubio um, after what we just saw out of him in FIBA play. Um, you know, anyone thinking that, I mean, I guess I can see where that concern may be coming from. Uh, I mean, he did have a really good outing, obviously won that MVP award. And, and then even for him, he shot the ball pretty well. Again, I say for him, you know, he was at 43.6% from the field and then 38.7% uh, from deep. Which, if he had been able to maintain those marks with the Jazz, I mean, heck, he, maybe he would, he would have stayed with the team. Maybe the Jazz would have kept him. He just obviously never could consistently produce at that level uh, with Utah. And the thing with Rubio that I would remind Jazz fans of is, is you know, yes, he played extremely well in FIBA play. He, he's done well in international tournaments in the past. Um, but largely his NBA career has been a lot of the same. You know, he's been someone who has struggled to shoot consistently. Um, he's been extremely turnover prone. And we even saw in FIBA that he was extremely turnover prone. I mean, he turned the ball over uh, 3.5 times per game, uh, which was the fifth highest mark of all FIBA players. Um, and that's really something, you know, along with all the other, you know, positives that Mike Conley brings, I feel like one thing that Jazz really saw in Conley is just that he is uh, extremely good at taking care of the ball. Um, I wrote an article about a month ago now for the J-Notes um, where I mentioned it, it was about one eye-opening stat from each, uh, each new Jazz player. And the one for Conley was that he has an assist-to-turnover ratio of 3.45, which is to say that for every one turnover, uh, he notched 3.45 assists. And that was 13th in the league, which might say, okay, that, that, that's pretty good. Not, maybe not too mind-blowing. But when you compared that with his usage rating, uh, there wasn't a single player in the entire league who had a better assist-to-turnover ratio than Conley at a higher usage rating. And really, the players that were above him didn't even have a usage rating in the same.
same, uh, really in the same ballpark as him. So just knowing that Conley is someone that takes care of the ball extremely well, um, that in and of itself is going to be something that really separates him from Rubio. Um, and again, I, I love Rubio. I think Jazz fans all, all love Rubio for the, the, you know, the heart he played with and the things he brought. Uh, but the fact that, you know, and even in FIBA play, he had some games where he was just erratic, where, you know, his, he had a lot of points, but his shooting percentages just weren't there. And I think that's what really became troublesome of Rubio the past two seasons was you never know, you never knew which version you were going to get. And that, that streakiness, that inconsistency, that poor shooting, um, I think that most likely he's going to continue to do that with the Suns, um, especially with less weapons around him than he's used to with the Jazz. So anyway, long story short, you know, I don't want to take anything away from Rubio. I'm actually really proud of him and the way he played uh, for Spain. And obviously they wouldn't have won without his play. He was phenomenal. Um, but I also said any Jazz fans that are nervous about, you know, wow, did we make a mistake in letting him go after how well he played in FIBA? I, I would not lean that far. I, I think and. You know, also not to discredit the good things I've said about Mitchell and Gobert, but I think you have to take FIBA play with a grain of salt to a little bit. Yes, there can be good things shown. There can be bad things shown. But at the end of the day, uh, it was, uh, you know, written in, a, in an article from The Athletic I, that I really liked that, you know, it's it's the same sport, uh, but it's a different game. And that's important to bear in mind with all this. Uh, you know, I hope Rubio has a great season next year, uh, you know, for him individually. Uh, but I don't think Jazz fans need to fret. I feel really confident Mike Conley is going to be great in an upgrade, uh, despite what we saw out of Rubio and FIBA play. So, with that said, you know, again, congrats to Rubio. Uh, great to see Rudy play well also and to get that bronze medal for France. I know he wanted more, but still a great accomplishment for that French team. Um, let's go ahead and wrap up now with point number three. I'll talk about Joe Ingles and his FIBA play with Australia. Point three. So I'm not sure how many of you actually saw the, the uh, semifinal game between Australia and Spain, uh, but there were really a couple controversial moments. Uh, one came on a, on a Rubio flop. Uh, yes, it, it was a really bad flop, but it was deemed a unsportsmanlike foul on Australia, and obviously a game that you know was decided in double overtime. Every little extra point like that was critical. And then later on in the game, there was a, a foul called, um, interesting enough, on Andrew Bogut when it, it definitely looked like Marc Gasol was the one to commit the foul. I was obviously cheering for for Australia, uh, but I was pretty impartial. Obviously, didn't have too much skin in the game there, um, other than wanting Joe Ingles to do well. But anyway, I mean, obviously, uh, Australia didn't end up winning. There's a little bit of uh, bitterness about that. Um, also, it hurt that Patty Mills, who was so fantastic throughout the tournament, he did miss a uh, you know late free throw, which was definitely very detrimental to Australia's chances. So anyway, that that, that aside, um, all in all, I thought Joe Ingles had a really good uh, you know a really good showing in the, the FIBA World Cup. Um, you know, he had to handle a lot of responsibility for, for his Australian team. Um, you know, he was one of the major ball handlers. He was great with assists. You know, he chalked up assists at a rate of 5.6 per game. He actually led the Australians in rebounding, even above the likes of Andrew Bogut and Aaron Baines. And, and then he was the team's third leading scorer. Um, so just all in all, you know, he was obviously crucial in them uh, getting as far as they did. They managed to beat uh, France in the final game of group play, and then it looked like you know it was possible that they would meet again in the finals. Um, instead, they fell to Spain in, in that heartbreaker, and then they played France, uh, you know, for the bronze medal game, and they were not able to replicate their victory from group play. Uh, France arose victorious in what was a pretty tough game for a lot of Australian players. I really feel like that loss to Spain was pretty taxing emotionally and physically, and, and took a lot out of them. But, you know, what? really all in all, like I said, a great showing by Ingles. Um, I actually just read today a really nifty piece from uh, from Ben Dowsett, uh, who writes for Forbes. 
and it was talking about how you know Joe Ingles wanted to improve at, at going right. Obviously, he's a great finisher, you know, going left, uh, his his dominant hand. Um, and then he talked about in that article that you know Ingles had a lot of chances to test out his uh, you know going to his right hand in FIBA play and, and had some success with it. So highly recommend you check out the article. It was a great read, um, a lot of great examples in it as well. Um, but you know I, I think that hopefully that's what we're going to see out of Ingles is just he continues to get more crafty. He just you know tunes up a few of his weaknesses and he showed that in FIBA play and I, I think we'll hopefully see it this upcoming regular season. Um, with that said, I do have to admit that I, I do have one concern uh, with Joe Ingles and. Um, it's not just because of FIBA play, um, but I feel like FIBA play is a continuation of a concern that's been mounting for me a little bit. And uh, this may come as a surprise to some of you, but that concern I have actually has to do with Ingles' three-point shooting. Um, now, with that said, I mean, if we look at his three-point percentage from last season, um, it was 39.1%. And if we look at that alone, you just say, that, that's a great figure. I mean, 39%, you would wish you know a lot of your team was shooting that when, when they probably aren't. Um, but when you consider that you know the year before that, uh, Joe Ingles was shooting 44% from three um, and was at 44.1 the year before that. Um, you're talking about a 5% decrease uh, from one year to the next, which, you know, that in and of itself is a little disheartening. You can maybe chalk it up to a cold streak or something like that. Uh, but then when you factor in, too, that after that in the playoffs, he shot just 27.6%. I mean, you can point a lot of fingers if you want to about why the Jazz lost to the Rockets. Uh, but the biggest overall culprit was they couldn't make open shots. And Ingles was as guilty of that as anybody. I mean, really, that 27.6% that mark in the playoffs was terrible. And then why I continue to be a little bit concerned is then you extend that to FIBA. And sure, it's only eight games, uh, but he shot just 26.3% uh, from the perimeter. And so just a little bit concerning that, you know, sure, maybe they've been a couple cold streaks and maybe over the course of an 82-game season, he's going to correct it just fine. Um, but a little worrisome that maybe that, that shot's on the decline. And, you know, I, I doubt Ingles is listening to this, but I, if he were, I hope he would hear it and use it as bulletin board material and prove me wrong. And whether he hears it or not, you know, I think he's going to come out in this season hoping to obviously get back to his former prolific ways. Um, I mean, for a little bit of context, in the 2018 playoffs, he actually absolutely scorched the Nets from three. In that year, he shot 45.5% in 11 games. Obviously, there was the uh, you know the six against the Thunder and the five against the Rockets. But he shot 45.5%. Not only that, it was across 11 games, and it was with seven attempts per game, which is crazy. Like he was just an absolute weapon that year, and I think we expected him to keep that up. And um, you know, he had great moments during the regular season, um, but last year's playoffs, he just was not able to be that weapon whatsoever. So. That is a little bit of concern I have with Ingles. I guess if you're looking for some positives, though, I think a few things you can look at with Ingles as it, as it pertains to his three-point shooting for next year. One of those is he's going to have a lot more weapons around him, uh, which should lead to more open threes for Ingles and, and hopefully a chance to really raise his percentage. Um, that's going to be absolutely wonderful. Another thing to look at, too, um, is that in FIBA play, um, obviously he was shouldering a much heavier load for Australia than he will with the Jazz. So that may have just taken a lot out of him. Obviously, he's not he's no spring chicken anymore by you know NBA standards. Um, so maybe just that extra responsibility, the extra you know ball handling he had to do with Australia made it so that his shot suffered. And with the Jazz, he'll he'll be able to play off ball you know much more. He'll have less responsibility. I do think Ingles will be used as a ball handler you know a lot like he was last year. But all I'm saying is he's not going to have those same responsibilities he had with Australia. So maybe that lighter 
or low to allow him to shoot better as well. I'm not sure. I mean, I hope so. I hope we can see him get back to where he was. Um, but but really, overall, you know, you know what you're getting in Eagles. You're going to get a guy that's going to, you know, really go out there and get under the opponent's skin. He's going to give his all every single game. And he's still a lights-out shooter that stretches uh, your offense big time. He stretches the floor because guys on opposing teams know they have to respect him. Um, you know, in conclusion here, uh, this is something I promised quite a few episodes back that I wanted to talk about. So I thought this was an appropriate time to talk about it. You know, looking at Joe Ingles, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, what can we expect with some of the Utah Jazz lineups next year, especially, you know, their starting lineup. And we know, you know, without a doubt that, you know, Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, uh, Boyan Bogdanovich and Rudy Gobert are going to be four of the five uh, Jazz starters. But there's been quite a bit of debate about, well, who's going to start at the three slash four spot. Um, you know, and, and most of the assumption is that Boyan is going to start at the three, which leaves the Jazz with some interesting choices uh, for the four. And one of the theories that has been brought up uh, quite a lot, uh, predominantly by uh, the Athletics' Tony Jones, is that, uh, you know, Royce O'Neal is going to get the chance to slide down and start at that four spot. And honestly, I'm a pretty big proponent of that. I really like that idea. I I like Royce as a defender against, uh, you know, teams that go small. I like Royce as a three-point threat. I think he'll continue to get better from three. He showed some really great signs toward the ends of last year and and, and in the playoffs as one of the few guys that was, you know, making threes for us. So I really like that thought of of Royce being that starting four. And then with that, I think Ingles then um, would enjoy, you know, less minutes during the regular season. Um, he'd be one of those primary ball handlers off the bench, but but also I think it's important for him and for him to be able to maximize his shooting ability. I'd have quite a bit of time off ball as well with the starters. I, I think him kind of having that that mixed role where you know he plays some minutes leading that second unit, uh, plays some minutes really thriving as an off ball threat with the starters. Um, I think that'll be great. But I like the idea of having Ingles come off the bench and being almost this you know this sixth man guy that's going to come in and, and get points and hopefully he can build a similar chemistry like he had with Derek Favors. Hopefully he can build that with Ed Davis and that second unit and do some great things. So really, I'm all on board for the the Royce at the four in the starting lineup train. I I think, you know, maybe against some bigger teams, you adjust that a little bit. Um, But for the most part, I'd love to try that out. If it doesn't happen, you know, obviously I'm going to trust in Quinn Snyder and he sees, you know, what his guys are capable of and he has the idea of what's going to work best. But at least initially, until you know it's just not going to work or until it maybe gets shut down or whatever, I think starting Royce at the power forward spot is a really intriguing idea and could unlock some new uh, dynamics and some new potentials that Jazz haven't had before. Um, you know, if they decide not to do that, obviously your, your alternatives are you could start Ingles and Boyan um, with, with Ingles and Boyan kind of playing a split three and four role, um, you know, them kind of intermixing those two positions. Obviously, you also have Jeff Green, um, who could start at the four as well. You know, a guy they've brought on as a veteran that has, you know, a lot of experience, you know, filling that power forward spot. He's played that, um, you know, very consistently his last few years. And um, I don't think he's going to be the starter by any means. But honestly, uh, maybe this is a little bit of a bold prediction. But I think George Yang is going to be a big time contributor for the Jazz next season. Um, that might be a little bit bold, but, you know, I think his three-point shot's only going to continue to improve. I feel like he, you know, he did shoot the ball all said and done last year, you know, as a whole throughout the season. I feel like he had some moments where he was a little, like, like timid and unconfident because if you look at his three-point shooting marks in the G League, which I know that's a totally different, uh, you know, comparison than the NBA. But when you look at his three-point shooting marks in the G League, they were astronomical. They were through the roof. And then I think there was times when he got a little bit in his own head playing in the big stage of the NBA. But when he settled in, he was just, a great three-point shooter. And I think as he continues to get more comfortable, as he earns Quinn Snyder's trust, 
I think Nyang could be huge for the Jazz next year as, as a stretch four. Now, I don't know that it makes sense to start him at the four when you have guys like Royce O'Neal, you have guys like Jeff Green, um, you know, you have maybe that Boyan Ingles combo that makes more sense. Um, but I wouldn't put it past Nyang, you know, getting the chance to prove himself as a potential stretch starter. I mean, if you imagine if you were to have Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, um, you know, Boyan Bogdanovich and, and uh, George Nyang out there, I mean, that's a lot of three-point threats. And you're really stretching the floor with Nyang out there. And if you can continue to, you know, really have an uptick in three-point shooting and, and get close to those G League numbers he had from deep, that would be an exciting opportunity for the Jazz. So I'm not saying this is going to be the case, but I could honestly see a very realistic scenario where Nyang becomes more important than Jeff Green. Um, again, that maybe that's a little bit crazy talk. Obviously, Jeff Green is much more established. Um, but just some of the things Nyang brings to the table I really like. Obviously, when I say that, you know, the one crazy aspect of even thinking that is we know Nyang is not the defender uh, that, that Jeff Green is. And I think that's a big thing where Jeff Green may significantly earn the bigger role and the more playing time. Um, but Green also is going to have to show that he's willing to be focused, that he's willing to bring it. Um, that's been one of the question marks about Green in the past is, you know, is he going to be a guy that is going to be focused and locked in and reliable for the Jazz? Because if he's not, you know, that's where Quinn Snyder is going to have to pivot and Yang maybe that next man up that, that really benefits from that. So anyway, I know I got a little bit off track, off track there. We started talking about Joe Ingles in Australia, uh, but really wanted to dive into how Joe Ingles will fit into those lineups, how the Jazz can look the power forward position, and that's really what I'm thinking. I, I guess just to summarize real quick, I love Royce O'Neal as the starting four, um, given that a really good try to start things off, having Ingles be that, that really that lead man off the bench and a huge contributor off the bench. And then, of course, no matter what, especially probably in the closing lineup, we're going to see Ingles and McDonough together. I mean, you want your most talented guys on the floor at the same time, so I'm sure we'll see that out the jazz um, anyway that, that's all i've got for today guys uh i guess i would just say hang in there we're getting real close to the start of training camp real close to the start of the season uh, i wish we could just fast forward about a month and just be there but you know what they say patience is a virtue and patience pays off last thing i, I have to say before i sign off is i just want to give a huge congratulations to joe johnson um, i'm sure most of you guys heard but after his amazing play in the big three which was a blast to follow this summer um, he has signed the NBA contract with the Detroit Pistons. Um, you know, the Pistons are not a team that I, I follow super closely or, or that I cheer for very much. Uh, but I'm just glad he didn't go to a team like the Lakers or anything like that. So really happy for Joe Johnson getting an NBA chance. I hope that he does well. And I, I guess the Pistons will have me cheering for him, uh, you know, in a few more matchups this year than usual. So anyway, congrats to Joe Johnson. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show. Uh, make sure you're following myself just at Jared Woodcox on Twitter. Also, also follow at the J notes. Uh, we're pumping out a lot of good content, both the podcast and written articles. Um, so keep up with us and any questions, suggestions, things you want to see or hear on the show, please let me know. Um, and I'm just, I'm really excited to continue on with this guys. Have a good one. Like I said, hang in there till the season starts and let's go jazz.